you will, and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. So, Matthew, Mark, and then you find Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke chapter 19, as we continue in our sermon series, Sipping Salt Water, Finding Lasting Joy in an Age of Thirst. Luke chapter 19. This morning, we'll be taking a look at the uh, flavor, uh, the salt water flavor of, uh, of money. Luke chapter 19. Uh, you can find a Bible in the pew back in front of you, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Thanks for being here. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. So if you would pray with me again, please. Father, thank you for the morning. It is good for us to open your word. It is good for us to sit under your word. It is good for us to hear your word, and it is good for us to obey it. Father, we confess that uh, there are numerous flavors of salt water, of, of idols that tug at our hearts, And we want to follow the Holy Spirit living inside of those of us who are born again and and not follow after the flesh, which produces all sorts of idols, uh, not the least of which in our culture can be the idol of money. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us what it looks like to replace um, the salt water of money with Jesus, your uh, abundant and satisfying living water, so that we might see money as a gift not as a God, and we might not treat it as garbage, but as a good gift that you have given to us for your glory and for our joy. So be with us, we pray, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, you have likely heard the name Andrew Carnegie. Most of us are familiar with him and his life and his legacy. Of course, he became one of the 19th century's richest people as he led what would be the expansion of the United States steel industry there in the 19th century. Now, in the early stages of his success, uh, I believe when he was 33 years old, he wrote a little letter, and it was something he, he, he called a note to himself. It was just a sort of a diary entry, if you will, talking about the struggles uh, that he was having with the idol of money. It was a ruthless evaluation of his own heart. In part, he he wrote this. He said, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. He said, there is no idol more abasing than the worship of money. He went on to say of himself, to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time. And then he says these words, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. He wrote this at the height of his wealth, at the height of his uh, business, at the ripe old age of 33 Andrew Carnegie looked inside of his heart and he realized that there was a problem. He realized that something had a grips over his heart, uh, something had a grips over his, de- his desires and his, his love, and he, he, he named it the idol of money. See, he realized that there was an idol in his heart, but he didn't know how to uproot that idol. In fact, it's apparent that towards the end of his life, he attempted to pour out the salt water of money 
through philanthropy, through giving it all away. In fact, he gave away a whopping $350 million, which was about 90% of his fortune, all the way at the end of his life towards charities uh, and all sorts of things. Sadly, by all accounts, Andrew Carnegie died never tasting the living water that Jesus offered to him. In a vain attempt to uproot the idol of money that was festering in his heart. I think a prime example of someone who, like Andrew Carnegie, drank from the salt water of money, but who, unlike him, was actually able to replace it with Jesus' living water, is found in the 19th chapter of Luke's Gospel, in the story of a Jewish man with a familiar name. Yes, we're talking about Zacchaeus. Now, we all know the story, right? We know the song. Zacchaeus was a, what? A wee little man, right? And a wee little man was he. We're not going to sing it together. But we know the song, right? We, we maybe heard it in Sunday school or from our, our parents. And oftentimes, we sort of minimize the story and the account of what happened in Zacchaeus' life. We, we, we think of his stature, and we think of climbing a tree, right? We think of him hosting Jesus, and it's, it's a cute little kid's song. But friends, the, the story of Zacchaeus is so much more. It's, it's not about his stature or his climbing ability. It's a powerful story of what it means to be set free from the deeply rooted idol of money, both in his heart and, friends, that idol can reside in our hearts as well. So I hope you're there with me in Luke chapter 19 as we begin in verses 1 through 4, where we see the seeking sinner. In verses 1 through 4, the seeking sinner, we see that Zacchaeus had made money his God, his little g-God. As we begin, I want us to see six things about Zacchaeus in verses 1 through 4. Six things that become very apparent about this man and about our own struggles with the idol of money. Six things that demonstrate to us that money was his God. First of all, notice in verse 1, his place. His place. Luke records, starting in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho. And was passing through. Now we see that, that Zacchaeus lived in the nearby city to Jerusalem called Jericho. It was his, it was his place. And in the flow of, of the book, this is a significant uh, position. We, we find this story of Zacchaeus um, in a very interesting place. Because if you were to read chapter 18 in Luke's Gospel, you see that Jesus had a very similar encounter with a very similar man who had a very similar struggle with the idol of money. See, Jesus had had an, an encounter with a, a man that we often call the rich young ruler. You can look in your Bibles and you can see that encounter. And Jesus met this rich young ruler and he exposed the idolatry in his heart, right? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Give it all away, right? He's exposing the idol of money in this young man's heart. And the scripture says that the young man went away sad because he had much wealth. Jesus challenged him to pour out the salt water of money, and he was unable, he was unwilling to do that. And so now we move into chapter 19. Jesus is headed 
towards Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross. And lo and behold, he has an encounter with a man living in Jericho, this man Zacchaeus. And just as he did with the man before him, he wants to expose the idol of money in his heart. A little bit earlier in chapter 18, after his encounter with the the rich young ruler, Jesus said these words. It frames the encounter that we see with Zacchaeus. He said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He says, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, verse 26, we see the response. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Zacchaeus was rich. He was drinking from the salt water of greed, just as the rich young ruler was. Would he be able to pour it out and replace it with Jesus' living water? Or, or would he walk away sad? Would God do the impossible with Zacchaeus? Well, we're going to find out. Notice not only his place in verse 1, but as we move into verse 2, observe his position. His position. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And then we see his position. He was a chief tax collector. Now, stories told of a local bar that boasted of a bartender that he was the strongest man around. And there was this this bet, this wager, the standing bet, if you will. The bartender would squeeze a lemon until all the juice ran into the glass, and then he would hand that lemon to a patron. And if that patron could squeeze just one more drop out of the lemon, that he would reward that guy or gal with with $1,000. Now, of course, many, many people tried, but no one could do it. Until one day, a scrawny little man came in the bar. He had thick glasses, polyester suit. Of course, people in the bar sort of looked at him funny, and uh, the man said, "I'll, I'll take your bet. Of course, the crowd laughed, but their laughter was turned into silence after the man with clenched fist uh, squeezed six more drops out of the lemon into the glass. Everybody was stunned, and of course, the bartender paid the $1,000, and he said, Sir, what do you do for a living? To which the little scrawny gentleman replied, I work for the IRS. (laughs) You know, Zacchaeus' position was with the R.R., He worked for the Roman Revenue Service. His name, Zacchaeus, means pure or the pure one. However, in the eyes of his Jewish brothers and sisters, he was anything but that, right? As tax collectors were, in the Jewish world, social outcasts. See, they were traitor to the nation. They brought taxes into the Roman occupying government. They were in collusion with Rome. And not only was he a tax collector, as if that was bad enough, he was, did you notice, he was a chief tax collector, which meant he was on the upper echelon of the tax collectors of the day. He could, he could collect even more than the normal tax collectors. We've seen his place and his position, and as we continue on in verse 2, we see his passion, and it goes along with his position, right? A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and what? He was 
wealthy. He was wealthy. It's apparent that Zacchaeus suffered from the same salt water that the rich young ruler did. He, he idolized money. We have to ask ourselves this question. What would drive a, a young Jewish man to stab his people in the back? What would drive this man to endure ridicule and shame and scorn and social uh, ostracizement? One reason and one reason alone. It's the love of money. The love of money. See, his pairing with Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler who, who certainly suffered from the idol of money paints Zacchaeus in the same light. Yes, he was sipping on the same salt water. He had the idol of money in his heart. But, but friends, what does it look like? What does it look like to be sipping on the salt water of money? Well, it, it simply means to define yourself by what you own or by what you consume. To find your self-worth in your financial worth. See, the Bible uses three main verbs, if you will. Three main action verbs to describe our interaction, our dealings with any idol, including the idol of money. So, what do we do with idols of the heart? We love them, the scripture says. We trust them, the scripture says. And we serve them. See, Zacchaeus... He, he loved money. He loved money. It was what he wanted the most. He found himself daydreaming about new ways to, to cheat people out of their money. He looked with jealousy upon other chief tax collectors. He always wanted more. What about you? What about me? Is your bank account always on your mind? Does depositing your paycheck not only give you satisfaction, but, but does it give you goosebumps? We love money. We long for money. Zacchaeus loved money. He, he not only loved money, but he trusted in money. That's what we do with the idols of our heart. We trust in them. He looked to it to provide a sense of control. See, the idol of money lies to us. It tells us that it can give us a sense of control that only God ultimately has. It made him feel safe. It made him feel secure. What about you, my friends? Is your retirement plan based on the market? Or is it based on God's goodness and his mercy to you? Do you feel financially um, untouchable because of what you have in your bank account? Or do you trust in God? See, Zacchaeus loved money. He, he trusted in his money. And we do as well. But not only that, he served money. It had become his master. He served his money. His money didn't serve him. And I wonder which way it works for you and I. If we serve our money or if it serves us. Our friends, what are we willing to do? Zacchaeus was willing to do all sorts of things to satisfy his thirst for more and more money. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to miss out on? What are you willing to give up or to not be a part of? Simply to gain more and more. See, Zacchaeus was, was sipping on salt water. The salt water of money. Next, in verse 3, we see his pursuit. Thankfully, the story changes in verse 3. He wanted, the text tells us, to, he wanted to see who Jesus was. 
It was his pursuit. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Friends, I believe that God was deep at work, deep at work in the heart of this tax collector hooked on money because he's curious, right? He, he heard that there was a man coming to his town. He's curious. Friends, God was at work. He was drawing Zacchaeus unto himself. God was convicting him of his sin and of his idolatry. He was softening his heart. He was preparing him for what we see about to occur, for a life-changing encounter with Jesus' living water. We see his pursuit in, in verse 3, but But there was a problem, was there not? He wanted to see Jesus, but, the text tells us, because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. You know, I have a brother-in-law who stands about uh, five foot uh, six, five foot five. And uh, he would would read the story and and Zacchaeus' predicament here, and he would say, that's short people problems. That's That's a problem of a short person. He, he knows what's, what that's like. Zacchaeus was sort of like a child at Disney World, right? There's the, there's the, the castle and the fireworks are about to start, but, but he can't see them because there are people in front of him. And so he did something that was unheard of for people of his prowess and in his position in that day. What did he do? Well, we see his persistence in verse 4. So he ran ahead, that is ahead of the crowd, ahead of Jesus, And he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. See, friends, in that culture, grown men did not run. Grown men did not jog. They they strided, they walked. It was undignified for a man to to run in public, but we see that Zacchaeus, he he had to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus, and and so he runs. But not only did he run, which was undignified, what did he do? He acted like a child, right? Children climbed trees in that day. Adults, men, they didn't do that. But, but he had to get a glimpse of this man. And so he suffered even more ridicule, even more rejection. He had to see Jesus. He had a hankering that this man held the key to what was the bondage of, of the idol of money in his heart. So, next in verse 5, the scene shifts from the seeking sinner to the seeking Savior. Notice verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. See, friends, there was more than one person seeking that day. There was more than one person doing the seeking that day. Just as Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus, Jesus was seeking to save Zacchaeus. First, notice that Jesus came to him. The text says, when Jesus reached the spot, that is, Jesus in procession reached the spot where he was up in the tree, And he came to him. Friends, Jesus came to him. He didn't come to Jesus. And friends, that's how salvation always happens. Jesus comes to the dead sinner and offers life and forgiveness and grace. He offers us living water. 
It wasn't Zacchaeus who asked Jesus into his life, but Jesus who asked Zacchaeus into his. Jesus approached him. He came to him. But not only that, Jesus considered him. Notice verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, what did he do? The text says that he looked up, right? So you just imagine it, right? There are throngs pressing in against Jesus. Jesus is walking along the way. And as he walks, he, he, he stops and the crowd stops with him. And they're wondering what's happening. And as he stops, he, he, he gazes up with the eyes of God. And he doesn't only look at Zacchaeus' frame or his face. What is he doing? He's looking into his heart, right? He looks up at him. And what did he see? What did he see in Zacchaeus? He saw in Zacchaeus just what he sees in every single one of us. He saw a rebel sinner. He saw a rebel sinner who was separated from God and destined for hell. That's what he saw, but that's not the only thing that he saw in Zacchaeus. What else did he see? He saw a man there who was not standing on his money. He was not standing on his position. He was not standing on his morality or on his religion. We're going to see that the rest of the crowd was standing on their morality and their righteousness and their religion. He was not. Jesus looked into the heart of this man and saw that he was under deep conviction. He looked into his heart and he saw humility. A man who was willing to run and to even climb a tree. He saw a man who knew that he needed someone to save him from the idol in his heart. Third, Jesus called him. Jesus called to him, both with an urgent call and an unmistakable call. Notice, and Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Why? I must stay at your house today. See, Zacchaeus was not to wait. He was not to think about it. He was not to weigh his options. Jesus was calling, and it was an imminent call. Today was the day of salvation for Zacchaeus. And friends, it's the day of salvation for any and all who would come to Jesus in faith by His grace to be saved. Today was the day. Don't wait. Come down immediately. I have to stay at your house. Zacchaeus, it had to be shocking. There had to be gasps from the crowd. We're going to see it in the next verse. What? You're going to go to his house? You're going to go to this guy's house? We hate this guy. He's a rebel. In fact, the crowd says it in just a little bit. He's a sinner. And you want to go and associate with a sinner? And Jesus says, yes, I want to go and associate with a sinner. Because this story caps off in verse 10 when Jesus says, I came to seek and save what? The lost, right? I came for people like this, is what Jesus is saying. It was an urgent call and it was an unmistakable call. Zacchaeus knew that Jesus just didn't want to go into his house. Jesus wanted to go into his heart. And so, we see in verse 6 through 10. Friends, let me ask a question. What happens when a spirit-led, a spirit-convicted, seeking sinner meets a spirit-led, seeking Savior? Because that's what we have going on here, right? Answer? 
a spectacular salvation. And that's what happens in verses 6 through 10. We see that money was Zacchaeus' God, and we're going to see evidence that it now becomes a gift to him. Notice in verses 6 through 7, first, we see that Zacchaeus received the Savior. He received the Savior, starting in verse 6. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. In response to Jesus' invitation, Zacchaeus recognized, this is a gift of grace. This is undeserved. I, I don't deserve to host Jesus, but Jesus is making this offer to me. It's a gift of grace. And in receiving that invitation, he was born again. Friends, let me be clear. When a hell-bent sinner welcomes Jesus gladly, there is unmistakable evidence that a supernatural conversion has occurred. And that is exactly what happened in Zacchaeus' life. In verse 7, it didn't sit well with the self-righteous crowd. They grumbled. They didn't like it, right? Because they wanted a Savior. Um, They didn't want a Savior who actually came to save sinners. It's not what they wanted. They weren't interested in a Savior who came to save sinners. They wanted a supervisor, someone who would come to observe and notice and applaud them for their sainthood, right? Because they grumble. They don't see themselves as sinners. They saw Him as a sinner. But Jesus offers grace to those who recognize and know that they are sinners. And so, next in verse 8. He not only received the Savior, but he repented of his sins. Notice, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody, read, and since I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Friends, this is not Zacchaeus earning his salvation. This is Zacchaeus evidencing his salvation. We see further evidence that he was born again. He gave away, number one, half of his assets. For what reason? To help the poor, right? He says, Lord, I'm going to take half of what I have and I'm going to give it away to help the poor. Now, what did Jesus ask the rich young ruler before him to do? Take what you have and give it away. He was unwilling to do that, correct? Zacchaeus was willing to do it. He says, I'm going to give half of it to the poor, which was far beyond what the Old Testament required. Let me ask a question. Did Zacchaeus care about poor people before he met Jesus? Answer, no. He did not care a lick about poor people before he met Jesus. Now, does he care about the poor? Answer, yes. He does care about the poor. This is evidence of grace. Second thing, he says, And those people that I've cheated, because that's what the tax collectors would do. They would take what Rome required, and then they would take more than that. And he said, since I have cheated people, I will give back four times the amount. See, the Old Testament law said that if you stole, like what he did here, right, through extortion, that you would have to give that money back, that amount back, with 20% interest. Now, what is he doing? He's going well above and beyond What he offered was 300% interest. Friends, this is evidence of conversion. He cares about the poor. He's generous with his money. He seeks justice on behalf of those that he has wronged. 
And then we see in verse 9 and 10 um, that he received salvation. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too, yes, this man too, the one that you don't think is a Jew, this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It can't be reiterated enough. Notice, Jesus does not say that salvation came in response to what he did. No, he says, look at the evidence of grace in this man's heart and in his life. It's evidence that salvation has come into his life. Friends, Zacchaeus had gone from seeing money as a god to seeing money as a gift. I want us to see this. Two ways that we see. Two ways we can know that if money is a gift for us, do we see it as a God, like he did before, or do we see it as a gift, like he did after? Two ways. Number one, we treat money as a gift. We know that money is a gift in our lives when we are generous with it. We see that from Zacchaeus, do we not? When we are generous with it. And number two, when we invest in things that have eternal significance. Friends, you can know if money is a God or it's or if it's a gift by your generosity, by your giving to the local church, to your family, to opportunities uh, for those in need, to charities, to mission agencies. We can know if money has a grip on our heart by how willing we are to give it away. So friends, let me ask you, how hard is it to be generous for you? How hard is it for you to give away what you deem to be your hard-earned money? How hard is it? Zacchaeus freely gave it away. He saw it not as a god, but as a gift. And, and notice the percentage that he was willing to give away. Half of his assets. Now I think God cares more about our heart than a percentage. But, but don't miss the text here. Zacchaeus, it was evident that Zacchaeus' heart had been changed towards money. Because he was willing to give a ton of it away. Half of what he had. What? What does it show us? What is revealed about our hearts and about whether money is a gift or a God by the percentage of money that we give away? Not only that, but how we invest our money. And I'm not talking about your portfolio. I'm talking about are we willing to invest our money in things that yield eternal dividends? Brothers and sisters, is money a God for you, or is it a gift? It is a gift if you are generous. It is a gift to you if you invest in things that impact eternity. Finally, finally, not only can we treat money as a God, like Zacchaeus did before he came to Christ, Not only can we treat it rightly as a gift, like he did after he came to Christ, but friends, we can also idolize money by treating it as garbage. By treating it as garbage. That is, by demonizing it. I'm guessing that many of us in this American culture don't struggle with this, but there are some who do. There are Christians who take pride in their poverty. There are believers who take pride in their poverty, who snub their nose at the wealthy, and who take dramatic measures to avoid high salaries, comfortable lifestyles, and worldly luxury. See, for for them, it's not a god, in a sense. It's garbage. 
The love of money is not the root of all evil, but money itself. And the irony is, by avoiding these things, what are they doing? They're actually creating an alternative idol, are they not? They're creating an alternative God, the God of self-deprivation and the God of need. I have a friend who's a believer whose parents became Christians, I think in the 60s or 70s. They were among the hippies in the Jesus movement. And though these uh, this, this gentleman's parents were highly, highly educated, very bright, uh, he tells me stories about how they voluntarily lived in poverty, in poverty, uh, in part in order to sympathize with the poor, um, but in part, I think, because they demonized money. They literally, for about a year, lived at a campground. And I'm not talking about in a nice tent, uh, a nice camper. They lived in tents at a campground for a year, an entire year. He told me stories about how you know when bologna is cooked over an open campfire. That's what I'm talking about. All in the name of godliness. So that's kind of far-fetched. Steve Hopp in his book, I think, gives us maybe a little closer-to-home example of how in our heart of hearts, if we're not careful, we don't idolize money, making it a god, but we can demonize money or folks who have it, making it garbage. He he gives us the example of Beth, and he writes this. Beth is a middle-aged, middle-class housewife with three kids and a husband who works in construction. She drives a very used minivan and lives in an old three-bedroom ranch-style house. He writes, she attends a a very large evangelical megachurch, and she's very much devoted to God. Her friends admire her. Her pastor adores her. And on the outside, he writes, she seems squeaky clean. So what's the problem? The problem is that every Sunday she falls into the same pattern. She sees Christians pulling up to the church in fancy cars, wearing fancy clothes, and driving home to fancy houses. And she condemns them. To Beth, their money is a sign of spiritual immaturity. She believes they are all caught up in lives of materialism and greed, and certainly they are less Christian than her. So what is the sin, he writes, in Beth's heart? Of course, it's judgmentalism. She's angry, she's critical, and worst of all, she is self-righteous. Yes, she is sipping on the salt water, of poverty. She has demonized money and anyone in possession of it. So friends, we have to ask, how do we see and treat money? Is it a gift? Are we generous with it? Are we investing in matters that impact eternity, like Zacchaeus after his conversion? Or is it a god? Are we more like Zacchaeus before his conversion? Or is it is it garbage like like Beth and Hop's story? The real question is this. Which of the three is money to you? Is it a gift? Is it a God? Or is it garbage? Let's pray and we'll prepare to close in song as we sing a song of dedication to Lord. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It is good for us to see the conversion of Zacchaeus. We pray that you would help us to see money and to use money rightly, that it would not be a gift and that we would not see it as garbage, but as a good gift given for our enjoyment and for the benefit of others, we pray. All in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing.